no children's books, no TV chairs. <laughs> You're continuing the theme from last week's show. But so my childhood yeah. was what? It was one one green chair for the living room. It was the Massachusetts gulag as far as we're concerned. <laughs> This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer, but in France, je suis Mark Oppenheimer. Joined as ever by my co-hosts, Tablet Senior Writer Liel Leibovitz. In Israel, I'm Mama Leibovitz. And Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hi. Who on Long Island is Stephanie Butnick. No, I'm, well, my, like, my alter ego is Stefani, S-T-E-F-A-N-I. Ooh. Yeah. That's my Sasha Fierce. Today, we bring you a buffet of conversations about Yiddish theater, punk rock, and teen life. First, we speak with comedy legend Jackie Hoffman, a star of the Yiddish Fiddler on the Roof, and with the Yiddish language consultant to their cast, Motel Didner. Also, Stephanie spoke with Australian novelist Bram Presser about his book, The Book of Dirt, which is a great title. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, such a good book. Should have been The Book of Schmutz, but okay. That's <laughs> <laughs> so washka normative of you. It is. One of my kids got so mad at me recently when I said, Oh, it was Anna. I said, There's some schmutz on your face. She's like, Daddy, I don't have schmutz. I was like, Well, it just means dirt. She's like, Fine, tell me I have dirt on my face. But schmutz seemed, it, it offended her dignity All right. so much that I, I also, said, Also, schmutz is such like a dad word. It is. It is. I don't think it was ever used on me. I don't know where I got it from. Um, I have have one thing I want to bring to the table today, which is I was in Starbucks and I saw this really tall guy and I had this 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 sort of this sort of well of I'm not gonna say rage, but annoyance <laughs> rose up in me. <laughs> but it was Why? kind of Why? it was kind I'm of tall guy, and I have I'm not gonna I'll say rage. Was, what was his order? So I, I don't even know. He was standing around in that way. Some people stand around at Starbucks like they're waiting for something. Like in a tall way, in a like tall, their, like their coffee, you know, like in your business sort of tall way. But no, no I want to. This is, I'm not doing a bit here. I'm being sincere. The bit is actually a sincere bit, which is sometimes, but I know it's kind of stupid. I'm aware of that. And the feeling, the voice in my head goes, oh, come on. Who are you kidding? Like who, what, y'all, you think you could be, I mean, by the way, I mean people like over 6'5". This guy was like 6'6 six, six or 6'7". Six, you seven. thought he was just taunting you just with his tallness. But see, the thing is, I don't have insecurity about being short. How I'm, tall are you? I'm about, I'm a little under 5'8". I'm like 5'7", 3 quarters. And I'm shrinking. I think I'm now 5'7 I think I, I, but I peaked at 5'7", 3 quarters. Also, it's different at the end of the day because you squish, gravity pulls you down. Really? But in the morning, I'm almost 5'8". Because you measure yourself like on the wall. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I take out the pen. I, I wake up, Sid. I, I'm like, I'm at it's my tallest. It's, it's all like, Mark, age 41. Mark, age 42. Okay. So, so so the feeling is just like, I'll see him. And I just want to do this bit. Or I want to walk up to be like, oh, who do you think you are being six, seven? Like, what the fuck is up with that? So you're saying you don't have it like any any complex. It doesn't feel like a complex. It just feels like, because I don't feel it with people who are six, one or six, two, which is a height I might actually enjoy being. There's no part of me that wants to be six, seven. What about my, right? my six, five? Is that a little bit your six weird. five is like cute six okay. five is like a little bit that's, it's a little silly but right. also right. Leal, I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> as much as you will take from six, us six, tall people do you guys know what i mean though when you see what a six seven you're like oh come on but i think that that's like, a bit that's excessive it's a bit no, needs think, to be this tall i think that's that's being really tough on someone for whom life is probably a little bit difficult like think about those airline seats like everything is hard when you're over six five yes and like, i had a, a uh-huh. very like, everything is so hard no. Well, so I had a conversation no with a six- women don't find you attractive. No, at a certain point you might be, you like, can never reach the top shelf in the supermarket. No, I think there's like a past the ideal height, you know what I mean? And things are hard. Like you limbs, where do you put them? Clothes buying clothing is difficult. Like I, I think you're know. I think I Leo, think, you're six five? I'm six five. Speaking of people who move through the world, that's a stupid segue. <laughs> a little news of the Jews. Speaking of taking up space. Speaking of, <laughs> that's good. Speaking of taking up space. In the Jewish community. This is the craziest. <laughs> this is the craziest story. Tell us the story out of Chicago, Stephanie. Okay. This is from JTA. The by talented Jos- Mr. Cohen. <laughs> I know. This is amazing. Josephine Dolston, who is a very great uh, reporter for JTA. Basically, this couple in Chicago became part of the, the Jewish community. They attended an Orthodox synagogue. Now, you're looking at a photo of them right now. Describe yes. what they look like. Basically, you know, she covers her hair. He has the side locks. He is that side locks anti-Semitic. No, no. He has the pay. You know, he has they. She has skirts. Like she actually even gets the style with like a shirt with another shirt over, like a like a button down. Like she has. You see them in the street. You're like these are from me. You're like unorthodox Jews. in the streets, but actually, what they ended up in the sheets is they are Christian missionaries. Oh. And they. It turns out they have been sort of like gone undercover in the Orthodox Jewish community of Chicago. And then once you get to know them, they start telling you about G- Yeshua. 
Jesus, yeah, right? Yeshua, Jesus, the Mashiach. Yeah. yeah. And people, and, and they said, we actually keep the Torah and the mitzvahs. We actually have an Orthodox life in our house and every day of our life. Basically, they like are, they function as religious Jews, but they believe in Jesus and, and they're Jews for Jesus. And they're messianic. Yeah. So I have to tell you, yeah. you know how I feel about Jews for Jesus. My feeling is, you know, uh, well-known and contemptuous. But I have a little bit of respect for this particular couple. Because they're so they all in. are playing the game on hard. Yeah. We're not just going to go to, like, random Jews at a hill. We're going to go in the Orthodox community. We're going to throw down on Shabbat, be like, yeah, Jesus, bitch. Right. I mean, now, to be fair, so we don't get the angry mail, Jews for Jesus is one denomination of Messianic Jews. So not all Messianic Jews are Jews for Jesus affiliated. But yeah, they're basically, well, they're not so different from other Messianic Jews. They're just the Orthodox version. Like normally you encounter Reform and Conservative Messianic Jews. And these guys are like the full Shomer Shabbos, you know. These guys are the Satmars of the, the Messianic <laughs> Jews. There is something about the sort of hardcoreness of it that uh, I can imagine would. Uh, uh, well, they go by David and Rivka. And it's like. <laughs> Here's the crazy Dub thing. It. It's kind of like how we were talking Dub about the other week, like how anti-Semites knew so much about oh, Jews. Yeah. Like, actually, the Christian missionaries know, are like, I'm not going to get found out by right. you know by use by not knowing how to what is what, what was the spies of no country like? Yeah, like they know everything yeah. that they need to do, and they are living Jewish lives. And you're like, wow, dude, just sell your product. Like, why yeah. go through all the show? You'd be like, you know, it was great, Jesus. You right. want some Jesus? Yeah. I got some Jesus right here. Because here's the thing, like. So my friend Alan Appel, he wrote this this great novel, The Book of Norman, and in which the he The Book of Norman. Norman. And in which he um the, the main character is Jewish and becomes Mormon because they're living in Southern California. It's the late 60s, early 70s. He's sort of disaffected with Judaism and the Jewish counterculture. And he meets these incredibly non-countercultural, clean-cut Mormons who hang out on a beach, play volleyball with like really cute women and grill meat. And he's like, oh, my God, I want to lead a beach lifestyle. And he becomes Mormon because what they're selling is neurosis-free, you know, oh my food God. with bacon. And he's like, that's, well, that's better than what I've got See, at this, home with, with this Bubby. Is, this is what it's these like, guys are not getting. Yeah. Like, get Jesus. Be like, do you want no neurosis? Like, yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> I, Come over here. The but, funniest thing is that, like, people, I think, were tipped off when they got Purim baskets, Mishalach Manot, but they contained missionary materials. Oh, is that how they got outed? And they say this wasn't them. They didn't do it. But basically, people were like, there are things that were off. In this article, it says, like, the woman wore, dressed modestly, but didn't wear, like, darker color. Like, didn't, like, and her Hebrew, you know, she had pronounced Yiddish words a little bit weird. And he had, like, great Bible knowledge, but didn't speak very well, very good Hebrew. Yeah. And so, like, there were, like, these weird Instead things that... Chai, they said Christ. <laughs> <laughs> the, they are, however, better Jews than the people at Harvard who uh, published True. a sexualized photo of Anne Frank. The Harvard Lampoon did this sort of jokey um, thing about – the headline is uh, – so Harvard Lampoon's a humor magazine. Harvard, the headline is, Gone Before Her Time, Virtual Aging Technology Shows Us What Anne Frank Would Have Looked Like If She Hadn't Died. And it's a picture of Anne Frank superimposed on a super busty, like, triple D cup porn body. And um, they got in lots of uh, stuff for this. Um, there was a petition circulating that the magazine be held accountable. The Harvard Hillel rabbi, Jonah Steinberg, wrote uh, to the Lampoon editors, and he said this recalls Nazi propaganda. And um, I don't – yeah, I mean why did – now, again, I'm not easily offended. I always have this disclaimer. I think a lot of stuff is funny. We, of course, are perhaps the country's leading purveyor of Holocaust jokes. So we – no, you know. not not Hulk. Like, there's there's a difference. Okay, right. first of all, I have a. Few, it's just a it's just a cheap shot. It was like Anne Frank on like a pin as a pinup. Yeah, it's an affront to humor. Forget. Yeah, Jews. so it's not yeah. funny. Yeah. So that's right. actually a big a big deal. It wasn't like a sub, and you know what actually would be funny is like some subversive commentary on the fact that like Anne Frank has become such a global symbol right. that actually you could argue that. You know what I mean? Like she's become such right. a trope that maybe there is some really like subversive thing you could do with that. But like putting her on a like big boob swimsuit model is not right. doesn't she's feel been, right. She's been so marketed that like you wouldn't be surprised if there was like Anne Frank themed Oreos around, you know, Holocaust Remembrance Day or something that like there's a way in which you could mock like how that, commercialized she's been. Mm -hmm. But it's not put her over enormous boobs with a really skinny uh, washboard. Like, this tagline to be so good you want to hide them. But to me, <laughs> there we go. There, so, you're welcome. Thank or, you, Lampoon yeah. Nabisco. But so, so it to me is like, oh, 
it, it just it shows how like people think Holocaust is edgy. Like there's a way in which it's like an easy trope to go to being like, oh, we're going to make. And I imagine a lot of them are Jewish. Right. And the problem is, it's I like, actually imagine a lot of them aren't Jewish because because there are fewer and fewer Jews in the Ivy League these days. Right? Harvard, a lot Harvard of them is less than six percent nowadays. Plus, I'm sorry, but in that six million percent stupid. Fucking campus. <laughs> like, I bet they would not have poked fun at any other ethnicity because, oh my God, we'll be so offended. It is hard to imagine them taking a African-American a, figure, an Asian-American figure. just and doing fired that. a member of the law faculty for agreeing to represent Harvey Weinstein. All right, like, all right. This is I a really dumb campus. Well, I, wait, but so wait, yeah, they're not okay. the dumbest campus in America. No, they're not. That goes to my wife's alma mater, Williams College, where the, um, the sort of like student activities, the STUAX, Student Senate, Government, whatever, which is a dumb activity. By, by the way, I'm going to begin my memo to college undergrads. If you're spending your time in student government. You're doing it wrong. You've already failed college. Completely. You've already completely right. misused college. Totally wrong. But they denied funding. Having not What's denied wrong funding, with you for belonging to clubs? <laughs> having denied funding to no student group basically ever. They denied funding to a group that wanted to do kind of um, Israel education that was not some sort of like – you know, far right group. There was a group that said we want to bring people to speak from the left, from the right, but it's going to be about Literally, Israel. Literally, the group acronym is Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. Williams <laughs> Initiative for Israel. Which, right there, you should give them money because that's yeah. awesome. Um, so, Tablet ran a piece about this by this great professor named Casey Johnson, and he actually wanted to talk to some of these students um, at Williams, and, and one of them said the following thing, and I'm quoting almost verbatim here. He's like, "Well." I actually think this is at one of these meetings in which Wi-Fi was banned, uh, in which there was no Wi-Fi reception. It's a dead zone. Or as your uh, grandma says, Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi. Um, one of these students, this is Williams, one of the country's best colleges. He said, well, you know, um, I actually think that what Israel is doing is worse than what the Nazis did because the Nazis put the Jews in ghettos for really short periods of time and the Israelis put the Palestinians in ghettos for really long periods of time, so it's worse. Now, Here's the thing. Forget forget the Israel thing. Forget the Jew. Forget all the politicized shit around this, right? For a person, for a student in one of this country's elite institutions to display absolutely zero sense of historical not what is this degree even worth at That's this amazing. point? Like, they this only had to stay graduate. in the Warsaw Ghetto a couple oh. years before they got shipped out, before they were given tickets and honestly, to the they, East. They were only in Auschwitz for a short amount of time, too. <laughs> Sometimes minutes. Sometimes minutes. <laughs> yeah, is, I mean, I think That's not bad, yeah, right? I think I think uh, there's like yeah, that's truly disturbing. And for someone to like feel so confident of their viewpoint to share that with someone, you're like, why would you ever? Right. This is wrong. And, and be popular for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would love to hear from Williams alum students or alumni about what is, go, what is go go to professional schools going on. Go to I, go to culinary schools. By the way, I think you're wrong about. That. I've been thinking about your your the the your latest my college tablet in for the Jews world. not to go to universities well, or fund them for your basically yeah don't go to college don't go I, to college and I think that's wrong. I I have some sympathy for it, but well, that's boys for, go to Jupiter to get that's Rebecca, Rebecca Minkoff, Are you listening? That's for another show. That's for another show. got some live shows to talk about. June 26th, we'll be in Chicago with Blair Braverman, a Jewess who competed in the Iditarod race in Alaska. Go to bit.ly slash unorthodox Chicago. May 30th, that is tonight for many of you listening. Come see me at Hebrew College in Boston, hebrewcollege.edu for more information on that. Uh, and still time to sign up for Thread at Yale. Thread.yale.edu. You can learn storytelling with me, Catherine Burns from The Moth, and others. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. We are here with the legendary Jackie Hoffman, actress, singer, stand-up comedian. She plays Yenta the Matchmaker in the National Yiddish Theater's production of Fiddler on the Roof, currently playing at Stage 42. We are also here with Muttel Didner, the associate director of the National Yiddish Theater Folksbina. He is a Yiddishist, a director, and performer. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Good morning. So 
This is a, an all Yiddish production of Fiddler on the Roof. A lot of our listeners have already seen it. A lot of our listeners want to see it. A lot of our hosts have seen it. A lot of our hosts have seen it. A lot of our hosts love it. Yep. Jackie, did you have to learn Yiddish for this role? I had to learn my lines for the role in Yiddish. So I had to learn a limited portion of Yiddish for the role. Although when it comes to ad-libbing, hubbubbing, and background in scenes, I'm sorry, I don't know the language. So did you uh, did you have any Yiddish sort of in your arsenal before this? I did. I had a word here and there, what my mother notoriously labels kitchen Yiddish. So it was part of my, like Muttel says, part of my neshoma. And then when you were learning the lines for this, how much attention were you paying to what they meant in English at the time? Surprisingly more than I pay attention to what they mean when I learn lines in English. There's like a couple of methods to learn when you just put the words together like nonsensical syllables and don't address meaning to them and learn the meaning later. But I found it much more helpful if I learned the meaning of what I was saying immediately. So Mm -hmm. now does that mess with with your process? Because I've I'm a huge fan. I've seen you in pretty much everything. And I remember, for example, saw you recently in On the Town and oh. felt like so amazed by how like totally and completely you sort of embodied that character and like the entire stage seemed to be yours. Like when you have to stop for a second and actually think about the meaning of what it is that you're saying, does that kind of create a kind of barrier in, in your process? Is it that gets a different- more comfortable. Like now that we've been doing it so long... I thought, you know, I thought as we've been doing this so long, I, I didn't think it would change, but it really has evolved. And I've gotten a lot finally really settling into it and being able to take more chances and take over more because I'm more comfortable with the language. But there's still, as the gentleman next to me, the, like the piano teacher who slaps your hands with a ruler, like that's always in the back of my mind. And sometimes a syllable will be off and it'll right. fly out like, damn it. <laughs> didn't mean to do that. I know what the right way was. He'd be like, it's you know, pronounced oi. So right. You're, you're just concentrating on two levels because you're concentrating on the meaning and the intent of what you're saying, but also to get those perfect, beautiful, guttural, crude sound. <laughs> it just occurred to me that you must have the most insane people waiting at the stage door for you, and they must have all sorts of opinions about what you got right and what you got wrong. Yeah, we like to think so. Nobody waits at the stage door. <laughs> It's, it's, you know, we're in a Port Authority tunnel. <laughs> so how do you hear Sometimes some crazy broad, you know, will, will be there, you know, someone who you know has an apartment on the Upper West Side with eight rooms that she pays $300 for, <laughs> that type. One but room for each it cat. Was more, you know, it was more rowdy when we were at the Museum of Jewish Heritage. And because it's not a real theater, we had to walk through the front lobby to get out yeah, the front door. I right. like that. And so that we, was like, I'm grabbing you and pawing you, and I have no respect <laughs> for you right now. You know, there was a lot of that. <laughs> so we actually spoke to Rachel Zatkoff and James Monroe Stevko, and they talked to us a little bit about um, how they had to learn Yiddish. And I was wondering, um, Muttel, if you could give us a sense of what it is like to actually learn Yiddish. Um, what you sort of have to teach the actors. Yeah, teach us something. Sure. Uh, well, in terms of how we teach the actors, we give them a transliterated script because of you know, course- We want you to be as like as cruel to us as you are to them. Yeah. yeah. As merciless. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, the, the starting point is we uh, we have to take the script kind of apart because it's written in in Hebrew letters um, from from right to left, and we have to to assume that most of our actors can't read that. So we have to provide a transliteration. Cretans, yes, using not knowing this. Hebrew right to left. I knew it. <laughs> Jews these days. Yeah. Um, so you have this uh, transliteration system that uh, you know KH is and EY is A and AY is I, and so you have to kind of like learn that as well. So we break it down for them. We give them recordings that they kind of drill and drill and drill. We do this even as far back as the uh, preparing for auditions go. And we're looking for people with really good ear who can mimic it very well. Um, and uh, we start coaching with them beforehand and we try to be very exacting. And uh, uh, as uh, the lady to my right points out that, yeah, if a syllable is off, if it's if the stress is on the wrong syllable, uh, we got to, you know, stop them and, uh, and, and have them say it over again and over and over so and over. Until yeah, learn do, that, do, yeah. That, do that to us. Yeah. So let's start with... Um, we're going to go right into advanced Yiddish. Good. So uh, 
Sehr gut. Not a little, a little too German. German. Yeah, little I, German I know German, there. so that's so, my but problem. But we're going to get to that soon. Uh, we're going to yeah, go into the advanced. The, I know level. the master's Worst language. Case because scenario. Yeah. the thing is, when you're learning Yiddish, you have to learn the culture as well as as the language. Otherwise, it's you right. know, uh, it, it is uh, too too similar to you German. Have to be just thirty so, percent more complainy than you are normally. That's right. right yeah. So we're going to start with a, with a very complex question. In I'm Yiddish. also German Jewish, so like my allergy to Yiddish is generations old. Like I probably there's no hope for me, right? So uh, in Yiddish, one of the most difficult questions you can ask someone is, how are you, right? In English, it's a very simple answer. How are you? Fine, thanks. How are you? And, and you know, there's some insufferably cheerful people who will tell you just how happy they are. Amazing. Um, and the people who are more kvetchy in bless. English, we don't really want to hear from them. So have a blessed day. Shut them down. Um, but in Yiddish, um, we have to, so uh, there, there's two ways to ask. There's vos machst du, which is literally what what do you make? Um, and you can also say vos Herzig. So, was Herzig, what have you heard? What's the news? Oh, I like that one. So, let me hear you. Was machst du? Was machst du? Good. And was Herzig? Was Herzig. Good. Very good. Um, now, the very simplest answer is gut. Gut. Right. Not gut, but Nein. gut. <laughs> Uh, nice. It's the uh as in Give it to me again. Book. Give it to good. me. Good. Uh -huh. Good. But you never want to say that because there you're tempting the evil eye. Right. Oh, so course. you have to cancel out immediately with a kinahara. Kinahara. <laughs> or a tu tu tu. You got to spit on the floor a little bit. Tu tu tu. I don't mean to interrupt here. Did people really do that or did did Mike Myers just insert that into the culture? <laughs> I have a lot of old relatives and some of them are the Yiddish side of the family. Never heard anyone say tutu tu. Oh, I, I or poo-poo. Or poo-poo-poo. Oh, I get it all. That's once, not once just, again, Mark. That's not the just Oppenheimers. That's just not SNL shtick. People no, say no, poo-poo. No, that's poo -poo. that is that is very that's my very real. I come right. from Kinahara people. Yeah. All right. So you can always answer with an oi. 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 Which is about as clear as day. People know what you mean when you say that. Now, uh, you can also get into the sarcastic, which is also about as Yiddishy as it gets. So, uh, <laughs> was machst du, right, is the question, what are you making? Kein bris mach ich nicht. I'm not making a bris. Right. So, like, there's but nothing for me, happy. that would be a really good right. thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you can say that. Baruch Hashem, Jack is not making a bris. I'm not making a bris. And then, to me, what's the, the, the most Yiddish answer that could possibly be? Was herzig? Or was machst du? Was soll sich herren? What should I hear? How should I be? Was soll sich herren? Yeah, was soll ich herren? Was soll ich herren? Good, but herren. Herren. Yeah. Okay. The R is a little, you know, not so, not so, so German. Yet. Yeah, mm -hmm. sorry. Um, then you can just plunge into the straight up uh, dramatic. Um, how are you? As a year of My enemies should have a year like mine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to get back to the show for a second. So when, when we had um, your, your cast mates uh, early on, it was... The show is this kind of, you know, really interesting phenomenon. It just started and people were really excited it was happening. And, you know, hey, it seemed like a cool idea for something to do for a short while. It seemed like now it's become something much, much, much bigger than that. It's this kind of huge show that people are so excited about. It, it you know, moved to a new venue. It is going on in time. Have you, does that kind of change the way that you play the characters? Have you kind of grown into them? Is your understanding of the character developed with time? Or is it just well, like, like I said, to it's do? like in any long run is that I've become more comfortable with the character. And I, you know, you can make new discoveries on stage, mostly motivated out of, oh, my God, if I don't do something different right now. But, you know, <laughs> it, it gets deeper and deeper. It doesn't it doesn't really alter. You know, she's still what she is. You know, everybody still stays very true to their characters, but people are finding new things and it's getting like deeper and even more intense, I feel. Did you feel that you had to fight against um, against stereotype? People have an idea of what Yenta is and what a Yenta is. And, and how do you how do you create individuality out of people's expectations? Right. That? There's actually one bizarre scene and song in the show where she acts like completely abandons everything I'm doing and acts like a real Yenta and a gossip and creates gossip and wants to know gossip, which is much more how I am in real life. <laughs> but I think the language helps take out the language for me, stripped any campiness and any phoniness and shtiklach out of this script. Because, you know, to me is a lot more authentic than right, of course, right. You know, like now that sounds completely vulgar and campy to me, that whole, oh, my head should fall in the mud, you know, and this like 
this just makes it, it it's so incredibly unhip that it's become the hippest thing ever. Jackie, did you did you like the play Fiddler on the Roof, the musical Fiddler on the Roof? I I had a, a an obligatory love for it. I mean, I always thought it was a little cornball, but I always loved it and loved the music. And it was like, you know, when black people saw Lieutenant Uhura on Star Trek. Oh, look, there's a black person right. on the bridge of the Enterprise. It was like, there's a Jewish musical. But you I know, think kind of pride. what you said is so true. The fact that in Yiddish, it is stripped of all its camp. It's almost like it's so raw and real. And there's a way in which I think I'm uh, nodding. Yeah, <laughs> nodding emphatically. There's a way in which I know you always steal the show, but in this particular show it's all yenta is like it's it's all yenta and i think it's because of the yiddish and it's you speak it's seeing jackie hoffman speaking yiddish it's just so amazing i think it's such a relief <laughs> <laughs> do you get a lot of fans of your tv where you, are difficult people fans showing up i hope so one night because the my first the moment in the show is when i try to set up uh, a girl with a guy's son and i her name is rochel which was my character's name. So one night I said, Rachel, and you hear from the audience, Rachel! <laughs> <laughs> but normally, I don't know. I don't think so. I hope so. What's your favorite role you've ever played? Oh, God, that's so tough. I mean, Rachel is up there. Madame Dilly from On the Town is up there. I've been very lucky. Kinahara. <laughs> <laughs> Can you do some of your lines? Like when you come no. out in that. In you got to pay to see it. do my fucking lines. <laughs> but there's when you're you like. offer me water or coffee. <laughs> That's true. Whose job was that? Yeah. Where's our Who assistant? are you pointing at? Yeah, it's too late. Our producer Josh is like, it's not my job. It's some Don't other producer's backpedal. job. You could make up for that by not asking me to do my fucking lines. Let's learn more <laughs> Yiddish, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> don't ask. What's that? Me don't ask. <laughs> so it, it's curious because this show is obviously not just popular with Jews, right? Especially I now. You've run out of Jews. You've run out of Jews. Tickets. They've all seen right. it. You know how I, you know how I knew this? That that there's non-Jews who are coming because we had a show on Ash Wednesday and I saw with the, you know, with the schmutz oh. on the forehead. With the schmutz on the forehead. <laughs> I said, oh, there's non-Jews coming. Ash Wednesday. How ironic. Now the non-Jews have to wear visible marks. Yeah. <laughs> it's so true. I, you know, I was walking around my town on Ash Wednesday. There is that thing where like, it's the day they come out of the closet as right. Catholics. People you didn't know ever went to church all of a sudden have. And my first instinct is they, so you have a little schmutz. I want to lick my thumb like my right, mother. Right. Clean it off. Let me just get that for you. You should have special like discounts for, you know, parish night at the, uh, you know, St. Aidan and St. Brendan's Parish. At, right, bingo at, at the at the, at the Folksbina. Maybe we should, that would be cool to invite church groups and not just shul groups and stuff. We had on Shabbos, we had a group of 100 black school students from like a charter school in Harlem who had just done a production of Fiddler, which I would have killed to see. Amazing. And they came out of the Port Authority and the Papas, woo! <laughs> I mean, they're singing the whole score. They knew the whole show, so they didn't even have to barely look at the subtitles. How did, wow. as the world's leading Jewish podcast, how did yeah, we how did miss we that, that there was like a, a black school in Harlem doing Fiddler? We shouldn't be surprised since everyone's done Fiddler. You know, when we get an actor on our show, on our podcast, doesn't matter how Goyesha, like you say, what was one of your early parts? Fiddler on the Roof. They've all Everybody done it. But me. Really? You never this did? This is my it? first fiddler ever. Ever. Your high school didn't have the annual Fiddler on the Roof production? Like the Shul had it, the high school had it, everybody had it. I, I, you just I never made it. You were waiting for, I for was, it to I return was for the Yiddish to, to the Mama Lotion. One. So, will you tell us a little bit about the Folksbina? Absolutely. If I'm saying it correctly, you are saying it perfectly. Uh, we've what been does around it mean? Since, What's a bina? So uh, bina means stage. Oh, people. Uh, stage. The people's stage. Okay, yeah, we we've go. been around since 1915. We've never missed a season, and um, we uh, produce classics of the Yiddish stage as well as uh, developing new works. Uh, we did the, the obviously Fiddler is the uh, the U.S. premiere. It's not a we didn't commission it. It was actually done in Israel right. in '65, um, only a year after. Uh, Fiddler hit Broadway, but did you uh, always know about it? We always knew about it. We always knew that it existed. And it was always, you know, it's funny because for I've been with a company for sixteen years, and you know, people are very uh, free with their advice. You know what you should do? You should do Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish, and well, a kind of you know a no brainer. Thankfully, you uh, listened. But you can never get the rights to it. I think we're not only are we the first Yiddish production in America, we're the first time that it's ever been done in. New York that's not a Broadway production. 
because he can't get the rights to it, oh. um, right? There's always somebody planning the next revival. There's always somebody sitting on the options, and we just hit that magic moment where the uh, previous Broadway uh, which was a good production one, I between right? legitimate fits closed. Right. Uh, it closed about a year before uh, we approached them, and the next production, which is, I guess probably the one that's in the West End now, hasn't come to New York yet, and um, we 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 got in there. What were you before you were Muttle? Oh my my uh, right! It's funny because what was your usually name? right. My uh, English name is Matthew. Matthew. Yeah, and, but you, and my Hebrew wow. name is Mordechai, and Motel is short for Mordechai. And when you get into like Yiddish, you know, the Yiddishist world, is there a, is there a ceremony where it's like we you know they knight you like right. you are now Motel? Well, if you didn't already have a bris, they have to do that. Uh-huh. But, uh, fortunately, he's made. I, fortunately, he's a made man now. <laughs> fortunately, I got that taken care of. He sang the but, song about all the pains and the sorrows, yeah. and they gave yes, him a Motel. Yes, that's what right. What should I be? What should I mark? But wait. You know. uh, what's your Hebrew name? You know, I wasn't given one. And when I'm Aww. called to the Torah now, I use my grandfather's because he was Chaim. His Hebrew name was, he was Walter, but his Hebrew name is Chaim. Well, Chaim works, but you know, Mark, you, you, how about a Moisha? Moisha? I took um, a Yiddish class at the Workman Circle and I was Chava Fear. Because there were four, I was the fourth Chava oh. in the in thing. When I was studying Yiddish at the uh, the Yivo, so I also started, by the way, at Workman Circle. But when I did the uh, Yivo summer course, I was there was uh, Mot- there was I was uh, just Motel, and then there was Reuter Motel because he had red hair. Oh. So he was red Motel. Red Motel, yeah. <laughs> when you met your wife, were you Matthew? Um, I was transitioning when I met my wife. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I met my my wife the year after I started studying Yiddish. Um, so she goes back and forth because her brother's name is also Matthew. Right. So or Matt, and uh, so. So when you're in trouble, are you Matthew? Uh, if she if I don't respond the first time, then she goes to Motel. See, I was gonna say, is your sexy name Motel or Matthew? But maybe that was a little too personal. I don't know. There was one uh, porn film made in Yiddish uh, a few years ago. It was a lesbian <laughs> a porn film. A few years ago? Yeah, it came out, I don't know, maybe 10 it years ago. It was lesbian ago. porn? It was a lesbian porn What's film it called? in Yiddish. I don't know. I must have a we great can title. Think of, yeah. <laughs> we have to find that. Yeah. We have to find it's the like, lesbian I'm not Yiddish dead porn. yet. <laughs> <laughs> Bring me back to life. The oi of sex. It could always right. get worse. We're modest people, so, you know, like, you know, you refer to, like, just, like, down there, like, my Dorton, right. so it's you know, could be smaller. Yeah. Purim's <laughs> over. What do we do with all the cementash and bow? Something we asked your castmates when they were here, and I'm curious what the answer is. You know, a, a few months later, are you getting any black hatters in the audience? Oh yeah, yeah, for yeah, sure. We get super frummies. Do you? Yeah, we get little groups of Hasidim who come in sometimes in like twos and threes. You know that the no one else should know that they're there. They kind of sneak off, but yeah, yeah. Or from older married couples, which is really sweet. We once had a couple of boys with their payas, and I said, "How could you listen to a woman singing alone? Aren't you not supposed to do that?" But yeah, but we don't uh, subscribe to this. You know, <laughs> they had their own they were personal, rebels. right? Right, they were rebels. Interesting. Um, the play. How much longer is it going? Indefinitely. Right Until now, it's announced through the through through August, but you know, it's if people keep coming through five seven seven nine. <laughs> Jackie Hoffman and Muttle Didner, thank you so much for being here with us. Uh, our listeners can check out the National Yiddish Theater's production of Fiddler on the Roof at Stage Forty Two. Thank you, thank you, Ashenam Dong, Ashenam Dong. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. 
You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. To the mailbox. Uh, first off, I got a, a, a special one just for me. Catherine Harris writes uh, with the subject line in the mail, uh, misogyny alert. <laughs> How did you know it was for you? <laughs> Dear Mark, I love the show, but lose the bitch slap, please. Thank you. I don't remember whom I said needed to be bitch slapped in the last show. Uh, let me begin by saying, uh, yeah, that does sound like a term that that is, uh, it's a gendered term, right? And um uh, I will try not to say bitch slap. However, I was then in the elevator on the way up here today thinking, what term should I substitute for it? I was just like, my mind was going between, you know, f- all, as the floors went up. And I thought, well, I'll say pimp slap instead. And then no, I thought, well, that's, that's bad. That's really that's bad. That's much better, that's, Mark. No, pimp is really bad. <laughs> so you don't want to, you don't want bitch slap. You don't want pimp slap. So I thought, well, like, Dick slap is like nope, that's bad. Like that all is a of different these. Why can't together. we just slap people? So then I thought, oh, we'll just talk about slapping people. <laughs> well, actually, that's kind of crude as well. Like maybe I just need less violence in my language. But um, but thank you. And Catherine. in your life, in all, in and all, less misogyny. In all seriousness, th- uh, you're right, and thank you. Um, another letter. Dear Unorthodox, to follow up on your latest episode, a recent Washington Post column claims, quote, Sephardic and Soviet Jews are not connected to the Holocaust, unquote, as much as European Jews. I've also read the same view several times elsewhere. I am a Jewish immigrant from Russia who is a grandchild of Holocaust survivors. In fact, essentially all Jews from Ukraine, Lithuania, Latvia, et cetera, are Holocaust survivors. Is this column in the Post reflecting a common misconception, perhaps something that's taught in schools in the United States, or is it just a few undereducated authors? What's your view of the definition of Holocaust survivors? Thanks, Igor Puck. Well, I went and read that column by Megan McArdle, and it's a bad column. And there's a lot that I think she doesn't understand particularly well, though I generally actually like Megan McArdle's writing a good bit. Um, certainly Soviet Jews are very connected to the Holocaust. Um, as are Sephardi Jews. As are a lot of Sephardi. Right? I mean, there are certainly Jews in the world who aren't as connected to the European death camps as right. some, right? There's and, and of course, American Jews whose families got here before the Holocaust, like mine, were not always that connected to the Holocaust, sometimes shamefully disconnected from it. But I think that her generalization is wrong, and thank you for pointing that out. You, however, raise another question, Igor Puck, which is what's our definition of Holocaust survivor? And this, of course, is a very touchy, touchy, litigated one. Is everyone who was in Europe and didn't die a survivor? What about people who fled into the woods but didn't get taken to the camps? Do you have to have been in a camp? I mean, that is like a dicey, crazy conversation. But yeah, I mean, there's totally different definitions. What's your definition, Stephanie? Ooh. As someone who's descended of survivors. Look, it's hard because if you were a child, like if you're on the kinder transport, you would still call yourself a Holocaust survivor. But a lot of people would say you actually weren't. Anyone who might have died and didn't. I, I think I think I'm fine with that. I mean, look, if you fled and escaped, I mean, it was harrowing for everyone. It's hard. But I think there is something specific about having been in the camps that is different. But I don't think that having not been right. in the camp disqualifies you from sure. the whatever. But it's, it actually comes up a lot in terms of like reparations and this idea of who qualifies for what. I, but I mean, then there's a point at which we're all survivors, right? We're Jews and they've been trying to kill us for a while. And we all, you know, if you've been on the right, show but Survivor. Look, but epigenetics <laughs> and, and other, you know, psychological scientific observations tell us that actually people who grew up with parents who survived the Holocaust have a very specific set of, you know, emotional 
psychological. My children grew up with a dad whose family had only one chair in Correct. the TV room. And we all had to <laughs> fight survived. for it. And only ate Domino, Domino's Pizza. And they ate Domino's Pizza 12 nights a week. I'm and a were survivor. No I'm not going to give up. Igor Puck, thank you for raising a very live question. And I'm sure our listeners have more thoughts. 914-570-4869 or unorthodox at tabletmag.com. I'm here with Bram Presser. He is the author of The Book of Dirt, which recently won the Jewish Book Council's Award for Debut Fiction. Welcome, Bram. Wow, thanks for having me. So you're from Melbourne. Yes. And I have gotten a window into the Melbourne Jewish community through two of my uh, co-workers, Alyssa Goldstein and Esther Werdiger. You, of course, know both of them. Of course. it's a. Firstly, it's a small community. But secondly, it's always the way that if you bump into someone and they go, I know someone from Melbourne, you invariably know them. Because so it... They've described it as sort of like a shtetl, the the, yeah. the Jewish Melbourne scene. Can you? I'm just fascinated by it. Can you tell me a little bit about it? That's a pretty fair call. It's like it's very um, it's very close knit. It's very geographically uh, confined. There's kind of like one sub. Like my my partner's parents have never lived outside of a four block radius, including when they were children. Wow. Um, I, I I'm an out I'm an outsider. I come from across town. I, I've I've come into the wild west of Jewish Melbourne. Um, but it's yeah, it's like it's lovely. It's uh, it's very like Hamisher, very kind of. Uh, uh, it, it, we have a very high Holocaust survivor population, so pretty much everyone is a descendant of Holocaust survivors. So it's a very neurotic um, <laughs> community, um, but it's 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 actually it's it's gorgeously warm. Like you know, it's all about the food. We've got great bakeries, great um, butchers, and you uh, feel like I have to say candlestick makers now. But yeah, it's a. Uh, it's like it's a good place to live, and it's like a strange, it's a strangely creative Jewish uh, community as well. It's this currently this amazing cultural boom coming out of Melbourne, and it's uh, like in 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 every kind of art form, uh, Jewish creativity is exploding. But it's also it's cutting across into the wider Melbourne community. So there's a very strong uh, Jewish presence in the Melbourne creative world, which is cool. So your grandparents are survivors, and that is sort of the root of of this book. But it takes so many different directions. I don't want to give too much away, but I do want, I think every one of our listeners should read this book because it's just fantastic. I was hoping you actually might be able to read the opening sure. the opening paragraph because yeah. it's it's different than the rest of the book. And so maybe it's not the perfect example of yeah. the book, but <laughs> it, it just drew me in in a way that like the, the opening paragraph doesn't always... Thanks. I will. I'll, I'll, I'll preface this by saying I'm going to mispronounce subcarpathian, um, which I do every time I read this. <laughs> in the region of T, not far from the city of U, there once stood a village that had been in Poland, then Hungary, then subcarpathian Ruthenia, then Czechoslovakia, then Slovakia, then Hungary again, then the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, then the Ukraine, and now cannot be found on any map. This village, satellite to a satellite, changed hands like a crumbling heirloom each time losing a part of its essence until one day it ceased to exist. Even its name is forgotten, for nobody is left to lament it. In its place now there might be a field, or forest, although no animal would dare roam there. Or perhaps God, in his infinite wisdom, erased that tract of land, so the world might be smaller and less full of sorrow. So the thing that struck me, you know, I am the grandchild of survivors and this idea of you know, I went to college and I had a, I was in a Holocaust course and the professor told me to stop capitalizing the S in survivor. And this idea <laughs> that you are raised is, with like- It's a proper noun. I was like, what do you mean? That's so disrespectful. And that was something that you grew up with, right? Like this idea of like being a tzaddik, like- Absolutely. So this is like, we lionize and put on pedestals anyone who survived. That it is, it, it is a given that if you survived, you are a hero. And and that's that is very much the way the Melbourne community sees it as well. Like we we are raised in the shadow of the Holocaust to look up with in awe at those who survived, and undoubtedly there's a you know there's sense in that. But at the same time, it prevents us from ever really looking at the stories and and trying to find out the realities of what that life was like. Everyone I know who has survivor grandparents essentially have the same story with slight detail changes around the edges. But beyond that, uh, they don't, I don't think they've ever really in depth spoken with their grandparents about what happened. And they don't give, I think, 
proper agency to those who, who survived. It wasn't until after your grandparents died that you were actually able to mine their story. What you expose is fascinating, but it actually, I think, it brings you closer to him. Absolutely. Look, I, I the whole thing was a kind of accident, I suppose. When they died, I had a version of their survival stories that I was perfectly comfortable with. Um, and it was really just one of those templates. Um, a couple of years after after their death, um, this article was published in the Jewish News in Australia, the beacon of Australian Jewish journalism. And uh, it said that my grandfather had been selected by the Nazis to be the literary curator of Hitler's Museum of the Extinct Race. And I naturally was bowled over by this. I was incredibly close to my grandfather when he was alive. And I suddenly had this like epiphany that I didn't really know him at all. And I'd never really thought to, I'm not sure he would have actually told me his story had I asked, but either way, I'd never really thought to ask. And I was 19 when he died. I had plenty of you know, opportunity, plenty of time. So yeah, I, I then started looking into the story and without giving too much away, uh, it, it took me on some pretty strange uh, twists and turns. And I, I came out with a story that is not what the newspaper reported, but is very interesting. And I understand how the newspaper came to report what they did. But because I also fictionalized it and I approached them as uh, my, my both grandparents, as, as characters who I got to know as people, essentially, I finished the book feeling that I really did know them better than I did when they were alive and in a really satisfying and and, and warm way as a grandchild who had always revered his grandparents. But then suddenly, you know, uh, that kind of rugs pulled out from under me about the knowledge. I, I always say it would probably be, be a bit different if I had found out bad things about them. Yeah. Like people always go, you know, what did your family think about this? And I'm like- my family loved it because I found out things that made my grandparents look even better. Mm. Um, that said, I had I had my my mum's cousin called me one day and he, he's like, "I've got a bone to pick with you." I'm like, "Ah, oh, here we go." Uh, I'm like, "Yeah." He goes, "I'm reading the book. It's it's really good. I really like it's it's love." But <laughs> tell me something. Why did you have to say that your great grand his grandfather, my great grandfather, uh, was a drunken gambler? I said, "Well, to start with, he was." Um, and secondly, because if, if, if I didn't really, uh, focus on that, people wouldn't realize quite how extraordinary my great grandmother was. Um, and he said, yeah, I, I mean, I get that, but that's nobody's business. Yeah. And that sort of seems like you are from this small community. There is a sense of like airing your dirty laundry. Yeah. One thing that I was smiling about was that the story that everyone had told of your grandfather was that he you know, fled the town that you write about at the beginning of the book goes to Prague, gets accepted into a wonderful institution, becomes a teacher, and no one actually start, stopped to, like, pick any holes in that yeah. story. Like, how? How did he yeah, do I, any of that? Even, like, even in the kind of – in the fictional recreation part, that still happens. And it's actually clear that even though, like, the family story is that he he fled this little village and that he was, you know, he got accepted into Charles University and he was taken under the wing of the Jewish community. There. Well, clearly he had some sort of introduction, really. Like, he couldn't have gone cold and suddenly become this, you know, chosen child of the of the Czech Jewish community. And he also clearly must have had some sort of education in, at, at the very least, Latin to get into law school. So, yeah, I, it, I mean, <laughs> it's weird, I suppose. Um, and I, I, and that's actually the nature of family storytelling as well. I don't think you, you don't tend to pick holes in them. And, and, and actually, a lot of them probably don't stand up to much scrutiny if you bothered to. Well, especially, I mean, with the survivor community, because especially as, as time goes on and those connections are so important to us. And so it almost feels like if you start poking at it. Well, there's like a heresy to it as well. Like if, yeah. if, if you- like people had to do some terrible things to survive and we never really address that side, right? Because everyone who, and I say that there's a line in the book, you know, every, every survivor is a saint, right? And I, I think that, that we don't necessarily want to dig too much because we're afraid of what we'll find. Like when I, when I set off to write the book or when I set off on the search, like my mum said to me, are you sure you want to do this? Like you, you don't know what you're going to find and you might find stuff that will um, change your, your view of, of, of your grandfather. Um, and you have to be prepared for that. 
And I said, actually, I am. She said, well, okay, then do it, but just know, like, don't, 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 I, I don't want to have to tell you I told you so, <laughs> you know? And thankfully, for the most part, what I found out was good. And also, interestingly, one thing that really keeps coming back to me is that there were a couple of things that that really troubled him, which were he felt responsible for the death of his best friend or the fact that he survived and his best friend didn't. And also, he felt responsible for his mother's death. And from what I found, there really was no- uh, real reason for him to feel that. I wish I could. I wish I could speak with him now and just say to him, "This wasn't your fault. You know, this was a. You, you should be able. Your conscience should be able to rest easy, because you didn't cause your mother to die. You know, your best friend, like circumstance, killed your best friend, and luck spared you. You know, um, he felt a lot, a lot greater responsibility in those things." I think you're definitely right that there is this blasphemy of uncovering. It's true. Like to, to survive, you had to, it, there was like, tact, there was, you were either in the right place at the right time, yep. your number wasn't called, or you had to, you, or you know, did something, you did something to, at the to, expense of someone else. And I think if, if we were more open to exploring that or acknowledging that, I imagine it would help us because the, the trauma that these people lived their entire life with. You have a beautiful line that he was like haunted by, you know, even he escaped, moved to continents, but still was like haunted by this yeah, his whole life. By the yeah. Ghosts, yeah. I imagine that is what makes their suffering so great years and years later. I think you're right. I think had they been able to speak about it, had they been able to actually explore it a bit more, it probably would have been incredibly therapeutic. Uh, that said, I absolutely understand why you want to lock the trauma away and just combine mentalize it in your life and just say, I'm walking away. This terrible thing happened. I'm never revisiting it again. Like to open even slightly is, and I think I say in the book is like to open a Pandora's box and all of the, everything comes out. Um, and so better to just focus on this great life I've made for myself in, in my case, Australia. Uh, and that will be the defining part of my life. Not the, not my five years or six years in, uh, under Nazism. I was lucky enough to meet you because you won an award at the National Jewish Book Awards, um, where I was emceeing the Almost. night. Yeah, With all the good gags. Yeah, all the you know those Ellie Wiesel zingers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> definitely the right crowd for that. But there was a very funny moment um, in the middle of the awards. When, Is this when I dropped the chair? No, I didn't even notice that. Did you drop a chair? Yeah, as I stood up when you when you like called my name, I like stood up and knocked the chair back in, in classic Bram fashion, then tripped over it trying to pick it oh, up. No. I'm surprised I didn't like sweep my arm across and spill water across and pull, the, like, the, the lady next yeah. to me. Yeah. <laughs> the tablecloth out. No, it was very funny because it's it was a you know very fancy dinner. Yeah. A lot of well-heeled folks there. Um yes. and there was a moment where I I bumped into someone. And it was you. And we oh, turned. No, yeah. we, we both. We both, without realizing who it was, that we were like, "Sorry, sorry, sorry." And then we turned around, and saw oh, each not, other. I was, like, oh. <laughs> I was like, "Oh, sorry." I was like, "Oh, it's <laughs> just you." <laughs> yeah, that moment, I, I thought they're going to take the they're going to take the award away. This is going to be like the like the person who's the chief patron or something like that. <laughs> um, but I'm, I am curious because you you look a little different than all the other people who were there. You have tattoos. I was the manishtana of you the. You uh, have piercings, dreadlocks. I mean, I'm wondering. Do and you no suit. No. Oh, were you not wearing a suit? I didn't even, I don't, you know, I didn't notice anything. I missed the oh, chair. I put, on, I put on my finest dirty t-shirt and jeans and you That's good. Notice. You got to say, you got to yeah. like, you know, you have your image and you need to <laughs> really just, lean into it. But yeah, like, look, it's, it's, it is, it's kind of weird being there as the, like, cause my, my background is in punk and I'm still really just like a punk now who writes. Um, so it's kind of funny being the odd one, but like, you know, I'm the odd one out in Melbourne as well. So it's, it's like, it's just transposing across to a slightly fancier uh, <laughs> a context. <room>. Yeah. <laughs> because you actually are really a foundational part of the, the Jewish punk scene, right? In Melbourne with your band. Apparently Yacor. so. Like, well, in Melbourne, certainly because like there wasn't, uh, I'm told that there was kind of a Jewish punk, uh, like first generation in the, in the eighties or something. But um, we were part of the kind of, I think it's the, you would call it the, the Jewish punk renaissance of the, Late 90s, early 2000s. And uh, there's a book by Michael Kroll and um, Oyo Gavolt, and then he's got the punk rock horror follow-up. And it's very strange because a lot of it is about Yidcore. And it's really weird reading about yourself in like a kind of – like we were just, you know, a bunch of schmucks who ran around the world 
smearing ourselves with hummus and screaming into rubber chickens and stuff like that. And and he's writing this like very, you know, quite erudite, serious piece <laughs> on on the world of Jewish punk in kind of a, a, a cultural context and, and an intellectual way. And I'm like going, that's pretty funny for my joke, uh, like to, to end up here. But uh, it's cool. Like it's, it's amazing. And like, we, you know, Yidkor had a really great life and it's good fun and it's a – Currently, the worst kept secret that we're getting back together for one show at the end of this year wow. for a big Jewish music festival in Australia. That's awesome. Yeah, which should be cool fun. So you play punk shofar. Yes. Can you describe that to me? Uh, it is equal parts what goes out and what goes in. Uh, so in the what goes out front it's just you know played at various times with a band and uh during songs and you know it goes through the the usual uh you know tekia shvarim trua stuff but as well as uh just random noises um as far as what goes in that's a whole other story so they, we we used to do um sh- shots like we'd get people up from the audience and they'd put the one side in their mouth and we'd pour usually kiddish wine or chicken soup down for people to do oh shots God. and the funniest thing about it though is i don't know if you've ever tasted anything that's come through a shofar it's disgusting because it actually still has sort of rancid meat kind of at the end, right? Oh, gross. Yeah, I was just thinking as, it has a lot of like spit in there. Well, that's probably, the, that's the least <laughs> of, the, of the worries actually, but like- It's sanitizing. It's, yeah, oh. exactly. That, that's, that's that about. is gross. Yeah, it is. And like, I'd never do it, but like, I got countless other people to do it. Like, which and you would be like put your shofar in their mouth and then yes. use basically like a beer bong. And but, was, that's exactly what it but was. But you know, a yes. sacred ritual object. <laughs> so I'm told, Yes. <laughs> And like my shofar, and I actually dug it out the other day. Um, it's it's one of those long ones, and it's and it's got like I used to when we were touring. I used to put it on, like pack it in the what do you call it freight, like in the oversized luggage and all that. And so it's got all like country stickers on it, and like you know punk stickers on it. It's 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 the best decorated shofar in town. But at the same time, I also used to take that shofar and I I blew it in some synagogues and all that. So like I I it was properly ritually used as well. So I like to think that I, you know, on balance, I've kind of got away with it. I love the idea of like expanding the use of the shofar instead of it just being like something you dig out twice a year. Massively underused. Uh, Also, I think it's got a really great sound. And and look, I'm I'm instrumentally challenged is I think the technical term. Uh, So to be able to play an instrument and be half decent at it and people go, what the hell even is that? Is fantastic. And um, also at punk shows, I don't think people expect someone to pull out a, you know, four foot ram's horn and start, A, making noises out of it and B, forcing people to drink disgusting liquids through it. It's like very retro when you pull that out. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I, Okay, this goes way, well beyond 1970 when punk started. <laughs> this is like, you know, 1970 BC. So did you learn to play shofar when you were younger or was this? Um, this- no, I sort of just. Taught myself, up. yeah. And what's weird with the piercings is, I mean, I'm, I'm down to two piercings, but I used to have a Can lot more. Can you describe more. them? Is there a name for, for lip, lip piercings? Okay. I suppose they're in my bottom lip. Um, you know, the, I used to have a lot more. I, I used to have about 12 on my head. Um, so nose. The only thing I didn't pierce was my ears because I was scared of how much apparently it hurts. That's which is insane. really weird, right? It, um, it hurts but, more than everything else on your face? Well, I've got no idea, but I just had in my head growing up because I'd always <laughs> wanted to get piercings. And my parents were like, no, it really hurts to pierce your ears. You're like, like I'll yeah, pierce everything yeah, else. Yeah, <laughs> and I come back with like everything else pierced and covered in tattoos, but no ear piercings. Wow. Um, but yeah, so as I had, I, I used to have four lip piercings. And like when I got to that point, it actually became hard to play the shofar because yeah. like, you can't get the seal right. Yeah. Like that's not how God intended no, yeah, the shofar no. to be played. <laughs> that's right. He, he, he bram-proofed it. Bram Presser, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It's been great fun. If our listeners want to follow along with your journeys, how can they find uh, you, buy your book, et cetera? So the book's available, uh, you know, at the usual online sites and, and in hopefully as many bookstores as will uh, stock it. And then uh, brampresser.com. And uh, at my Twitter is just at Brampresser. I have I am Instagram, which I basically joined Instagram just so I could make the pun. And I'm really terrible at, at updating it. And then I've also got Facebook. But basically, I'm, I, I am not hard to find. All right. The Book of Dirt, which everyone should read. Thank you so much, Bram. Thank you.
So Mazel Tovs. First, I want to go to the uh, to the voicemail box. I'm going to turn my Mazel Tov opportunity, my Mazel Tovity over to the listeners. Have a listen. Hi, J. Crew. This is Elite Braswell from Orange County, California, by way of Texas. I want to give a huge Mazel Tov to my husband, Scott Braswell, who was just named the Executive Director of the Mirage JCC of Orange County. Since we're Californians now, I like to refer to him as the Sean McVeigh of JCCs. And I couldn't be more proud of him for all that he's accomplished. Leo, have you a Mazel Tov? I do. I would like to tell David Cohen, our listener David Cohen, I would like to wish him a very happy anniversary from his wonderful wife, the lovely Emily Cohen, and to remind him that he's very lucky to have her in his life, even though she sent us a note saying how lucky she was to have him in her life. So... Uh, Once again, we did this last year. We're happy and proud to do it this year. A very happy anniversary for Emily and David Cohen. Sort of an annual tradition. Yeah. Speaking of Cohen. love you guys. I got to shout out Ben Cohen, my husband. It was his birthday this weekend. And, you know. Mazel tov and semen tov. Mazel tov on making it another year. The problem is, though, so I'm about like six months older than he is. And so from the period between his birthday and my birthday, we are the same calendar age. Mm, That won't do. I do do. not like that. No, that won't do at all. So September better get here soon. Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. We want your mail at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or at 914-570-4869 for voicemail. Our newsletter can be subscribed to at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. To book us live or advertise with us, go to Josh Cross, that's J-K-R-O-S-S, at tabletmag.com. Send him an email. Tell him how he can serve you. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodoxpodcast or Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross. Our associate producers are Sarah Fredman, Ader, and Noah Levinson. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our social media mashkiach is Elazar Abrams. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Jill Levy, who takes over as the director of the day camp of the Camp Ramah Systems in Greater Washington, D.C. She replaces Rabbi Rami Schwartzer. She inherits the Rabbi Rami Schwartzer chair in Ramad day camp leadership. And we come to you from Argo Studios, which is still trying to decide which summer camp to send its Jewish children to this summer. Shalom, friends.